You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal Or measure them all by box office appeal But for once in your life Be real! Noah, I think each of us should get one I don't remember joke for this episode And I'm certainly not burning mine on the intro Welcome one and all, to Be Real. It's a movie reviewing, reappraising, genre-hopping podcast on the Playlist Podcast Network. My name's Chance Solon Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. And I wonder, like, can my joke be at lulls in the conversation, can I just say? And I'm Noah Ballard. As if I <laughs> had forgotten whether or not I said it. That, I think, sounds like a great idea. I think in practice would be very annoying for me. Well, we'll see if I remember to do it. And if I do, I'm calling my shot right here. That's going to be my bit. Oh, my God. Um, Just do it during my mediocre points, okay? Not my my home runs. How you doing? Are you excited to be here for the Amnesia Pod this day? I am. I am. In, uh, you know, a time where time itself is pretty elusive. Uh, It was... Mm -hmm kind of interesting to look at these three movies that play with uh memory and time and how long you've been someplace and who you decide to be uh yeah it was really interesting to do amnesia movies uh, which encompass uh the long kiss goodnight memento and mulholland drive yes um our topical hook here is that uh memento is 20 years old this week as of its U.S. release, not its Venice debut. What? If any of you are sitting there shouting into your headphones, go by the Venice debut. You know, you're speaking to no one. Tell it <laughs> tell it to Lenny. Um, so there's a lot of movies we could have done here. I wonder if you'd be interested in, in shouting any out. Um, well, the obvious born one, identity would be in the mix. Exactly. The obvious one is a born identity, which feels like it lends itself to a different genre. So we'll we'll keep it in our back pocket here. Uh, but that is also during this time. And what we discovered too is that all these movies kind of exist more or less in like the like the late '90s, early 2000s, and then are kind of done away with. Right. Um, paycheck also falls somewhere in this territory. Um, you know what I wanted to shout out really quick? You know that uh, Anthony Hopkins, Olivia Coleman, Oscar contender, The Father? You heard about this? I have not. Well, it's a sequel to The Wife. You would love it. Um, well, that's my favorite movie. That's so... St- even your joke is getting my back up right now. Um, but it's like, you know, it it's, looks like this sort of Oscar Beatty Alzheimer's drama. And I wanted to shout it out, having reviewed it this week, it... It's almost closer, cinematically speaking, to this category and like way more creative than you think when you're like, oh, Anthony Hopkins is going to do a Alzheimer's drama. Um, much like all these movies, which I now want to spring into, um, they really are able to challenge and experiment um, and turn you into a detective and a fool with how they play with cinematic structure. Wait, did you feel like a fool? At, at points during this week? Oh, sometimes. Interesting. I think intentionally, though. I'm okay I'd like with that. you to... Let's make note, like, when you feel foolish. Uh, <laughs> I'd like to talk about that. 
at it in general yeah i mean both this weekend in general okay cool um wait let me can i bring something up that will not make me feel foolish i oh. have a i have a theory for you about this window Yes. It picks up on something that we've talked about before. So you and I are, of course, I think a little innately biased toward late 90s, early aughts stuff. That's like when we started to see movies. Um, As people in our early 30s, like this is a real sweet spot for us to like have developed affection for things. And as a reappraisal kind of show, it's also like, let me rewatch what I thought was mind blowing at 13. But we've also talked about this era from like 97 to 01 before using uh, one of the, a quote from one of our stars in today's movie, Sam Jackson in Long Kiss Goodnight, in the movie Unbreakable, has... What? Are, th- are these mediocre times? These, my friend, are incredibly mediocre times. And I'm fascinated by how this genre plays into it. All the settings, sort of papery and unreal. It's so fascinating that they all hinge on people who are really responding to some sort of like latent inner demon there's like the ugliness of man peering through here it's very freudian at a time when you know the economy was good people kind of knew the president was a liar um for a lot of people of course not all americans but for a lot of americans this time seemed fine and you just have all these movies we talked about it before with like fight club and American Beauty is sort of the most overwrought, stupidest example. And The Matrix is just like, you had all of these filmmakers marshalling together to kind of argue like, things are not fine. And I think that all of these movies in their own way get right in that niche. Absolutely, too. And I think my big takeaway for this week is a little bit more zoomed in, uh, in that all three of these movies really kind of boil down to who are you and who do you tell yourself that you are? And I think that that is such an interesting lens to look through, like as we've all had a year where it's just like us in our fucking abodes, just like trying to keep our minds occupied and you end up kind of being like, oh, well, when I get out of here, I'm going to be this person. I was this person before, but I kind of feel like Lenny, um, you know, I kind of feel like the the women trapped in the apartment in Mulholland Drive. You know, I kind of feel like Gina Davis. Like, this is a life I lead now. But when I'm re- released back into society, like, I'm going to be somebody else. Totally. Uh, so I think I think these are all pretty, pretty poignant films in this moment. And there are also, at least two of them, are readily available on HBO Max, which should also be mentioned and emphasized. Oh, yeah. Which two? Uh, Long Kiss Goodnight and Mulholland Drive are both on HBO Max. And Memento is only $2.99 on Amazon or wherever you rent your media. There you go. Um, yeah, I like that theory. You're, so you're saying it's been 12 months of a lot of the, a lot of telling the story to oneself and not a lot of being. Yes. And yeah. I think all of these movies, like they all sort of climax in something violent, uh, but a lot of them are just people kind of like either looking in, in mirrors or looking at other characters and being like, hey, I'm this person. I swear. I swear I'm this person. And the other person <laughs> being like, are you sure? Because yeah. it seems like people with guns are chasing you. Like maybe right. you're not who you seem. Exactly. I, yeah, I love how different all these movies are today, too. I mean, just allegedly on their face, like one is big and dumb. One is obsessed with how smart it is. And one is an illogical nightmare. And I think that they all 
embrace those descriptors I just mentioned, and you could easily make an argument that they are none of them. They're all fighting against being that too. They're all having their own kind of identity crises. For sure. Real quick before we get into our review of Memento, I want to remind you that Be Real is part of the Playlist Podcast Network. You can type in that phrase on the podcatcher of your choice, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and you'll find all the shows on the Playlist Podcast Network, including Deep Focus Podcast, the Playlist Podcast, The Fourth Wall, and more. As for your uh, Be Real Patreon update, for three bucks a month, you can get bonus episodes from Noah and I, and we are having our next watch party on Sunday, March 21st. That's this Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern. We're watching The Mummy, 1999. It's going to be a ball. Hit us up on Twitter or email berealguys at gmail.com to RSVP. Even if we don't know you, we'd love to have you. Send us a message. I have this condition. A condition? It's my memory. Amnesia. No, 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 no. It's different from that. Since my injury, I can't make new memories. Everything fades. If we talk for too long, I'll forget how we started. Next time I see you, I'm not going to remember this conversation. What's the last thing that you do remember? My wife. That's sweet. Dying. Lenny! I guess I've already told you about my condition. Oh, well, only every time I see you. You don't remember where you've been or what you've just done. No, I can't make new memories. It's like waking. It's like you just woke up. When you find this guy, what are you going to do? I'm going to kill him. Maybe I can help you find him. Memento 2001 uh, tells the story of a man with short-term memory loss who attempts to track down his wife's murderer. And this, of course, is the first real mainstream hit by one Christopher Nolan uh, after the following, which was sort of a, an indie sensation. And this one's with Guy Pierce, Carrie Ann Moss, really hot right now with The Matrix, uh, just two years earlier, uh, and Joe Panigliano, or mm. basically the, the three main characters here. Two um, Matrix alums. I didn't even realize oh, that. Yeah. That's weird. That's true. Yeah. Cool guys. <laughs> Good job, casting directors. Um, yeah. Enterograde amnesia is the technical term for what Guy Pierce's Lenny is suffering from. As he explains over and over again in the movie, because he has to, his condition is that he can't form new memories after this attack that he experienced alongside his wife. But he remembers, or says he remembers, everything up to the attack. But as Joe Panigliano keeps reminding him, you know, you know who you were. You don't know who you've become. You don't know who you are anymore. I think um, yeah. one of the really cool questions this movie raises, functionally, it's closer. I won't say closer, but it's a lot like a, a time loop movie. It is in the Groundhog Day kind of space as it's like told backward because you have to see him like explain and re-explain and everything is a new context and the thing that really made me think of it in the groundhog day palm springs um uh milieu is this great question that teddy raises to lenny which is like you don't know how long you have been this way and that is a great question that's completely unresolved in the movie because like i feel like when you waltz in and you're like more in uh 
likely to take Lenny at his word, you're like, all right, he's probably been at it a year. You know, his hair's grown out a little bit. But there is that harrowing moment where you're like, has he been doing this for 10 years? Right. Yeah, that the there's an early scene where you realize that. So he's staying at this motel and he's holed up there. And that's also where the kind of... So it, it has... Uh, this Dunkirkian kind of timing to it where there's like the one scene playing throughout, which is set in this motel and he's talking to someone on a phone and you don't know who it is. And then of course the movie then goes backwards in time, scene by scene. Um, but yeah, you, you wonder if, cause it's quickly revealed that one of the things that someone's pulling over his eyes is that the motel owner has like rented him multiple rooms at this motel because like how would he know that he's paying for x amount of rooms but like you wonder if the you never see anybody else like you wonder if the whole whole motel has been rented out by this guy sure yeah that ends up being one of the more innocent ways in which he's been duped for sure where do you want to start with this what you i think we'd both seen it one time before i think we both thought it was really good um well as you brought up at the at the open like i saw it when i was like 13 years old or something okay and was just like whoa (laughs) you know it's one of those christopher nolan movies where you know when it pulls its initial illusion uh over you it's it's yeah when it gives you the prestige uh you know it's pretty incredible but i have to say though because it is so i see dead people you know kind of in its logic at the end like you don't forget what the twist is you'll never forget the twist no like now 20 years later like i still knew exactly how this movie (laughs) ended (laughs) when you look at it as the birthplace of a lot of these nolan tendencies that have played out through inception and interstellar and dunkirk and tenet it's most hyperbolic and you then revisit this one how do you feel about it? Are you are you, are you charmed by the simplicity? Do you actually think it's different than some of those other movies? How do you reflect on it? That's so interesting because it really is the preamble to a lot of very similarly structured movies. Oh, yeah. But I also think that there's something both like remarkably clever about how small this movie is and kind of like disconcerting ultimately how small this movie is because of how big the conceit is. Like we really don't even know like what city they're in. You know, we we never really even find out like much about, you know, this sort of crime organization that they're adjacent to at one point. You know, this movie doesn't have higher aspirations than explaining how did Joe Pantoliano come to be dead, which is what happens in the opening title sequence uh, and sort of working way back to seeing the the steps in motion to lead this guy to kill someone uh, who he didn't mean to, or maybe did mean to. Mm-hmm. This dawned on me at one point, actually, and it was as soon as Joe Pantoliano started talking, Nolan will never make a movie this seedy again. Like, if you think about all of his blockbusters, they're so polished in this, like, Anglo-American hybrid way. And by the time we get to Tenet, you have the internet just being like, I don't get it on first watch, but I love the suits. Um, and so... Right. I to, like that opera house. I'll never go there, but... <laughs> love that. So it's so great to go back. Like, for 
Joe Pagliano couldn't be cast in another Christopher Nolan movie. Like, there's no part for someone of his, like, the way he speaks, his that haircut, that mustache, that, that you know, rat face, so, so to oh, well, be a yeah. little mean, to be mean about it. And there's just that line when the, you know, in the first, I think it's the first vignette, when they're driving to where Lenny ultimately kills Teddy, where he just goes, why do you want to go there? It's just some fucked up building. And I like, I really, I love Joe Pantoliano, but like you really believe him in that moment. He's like so dismissive of like, this world's gross. Are you sure you want to go there, dude? And that stands out in Nolan's filmography. That's true. Yeah, I mean, no character will ever say again, like, do you want to go to that fucked up building? Right. Uh, Because they're just not headed there. They're headed to the, you know, planetarium slash nasa facility <laughs> right. yeah and this one too like the point is that the suit doesn't fit perfectly right you know it's not like, his suit <laughs> right it's not his suit and that's like so clever and so built into this story like i do feel like the nolan movies of late like have been more interested into like a rarefied even criminal class but still like the rich most successful x uh and like the weird time space dream shit that they're doing you know a lot of a lot of nolan movies ask you to subscribe to a certain metaphysics you know the physics of the universe bending to the human heart bending to friendship um I can get on board with some of that. It's a little tough to swallow sometimes. I think the genius of this movie is it just turned by by seeing Lenny as the insurance investigator trying to assess this guy um, and his own short-term memory loss. It kind of puts you in the sort of like an amateur neurologist. Like you feel like you're in a more, it's probably all an illusion. It's not simpler, but you feel like you're in this like simpler zone where I'm just like, okay, memory versus instinct. These both exist on some lobe of the brain. What do I feel Lenny has? So it's probably a trick, but it you're in a different position. You're not asked to believe so much. That's right. Yeah. But it is interesting, too, that this movie has one layer of being a convincing kind of movie with a parable at the center of it. And you kind of being interested in that as a notion for like a you know competing story with the actual storyline of this man going from his jaguar to this bar to back to his motel room over and over again uh but then realizing that the two of these things are linked and in fact the mythology that even this movie tells is in fact messing with you right what do you think of guy pierce guy pierce has such an interesting uh energy about him in this movie and his it's such a physical role because this movie requires him to be shirtless i would say in half of it because the whole point of it is that he's tattooed clues as to like where he is and what he's doing and who killed his wife and like his kind of mantra at the center of his chest which is like pretty wild uh this idea that someone murdered and raped your wife uh now you have to find them and here are the clues to get you there but it's also it speaks to his pathology as well that like this guy's often enough without a shirt that like he can just keep the clues right here on his chest because he'll be he'll be seeing it and it really is interesting to look at the kind of character who doesn't mind like 
putting on someone else's clothes. And like when you talk about instinct versus memory, like this guy's instincts, the more you get to learn about them are scary and more than his because the memories have been edited, but the instincts are fucking terrifying. One of the when I was playing detective this time, one of the moments where you see his instinct the most is so he comes to where he's running parallel with Dodd and he's trying to figure out if he's being if he's chasing this guy with a gun or this guy with the gun is chasing him and it turns out that Lenny is being chased and so he escapes Dodd then finds Dodd's address and what his instinct tells him to do is go to this motherfucker's motel room so you can get the jump on him and that's one of the first moments I think in the movie where you see like this man is a tilting toward violence from some like very deep place like why would that right. be your <laughs> your reaction right and as you get a little deeper into the movie too i think the moment that really solidified it for me is when carrie ann moss is like oh this guy dodd is fucking with me like can you like and she's almost like please don't i'll, I'll deal with it myself and he's he insists that he be the force to deal with it And then he kind of like sets up the way his brain works to understand that he's to find and kill this person or like Mm -hmm. scare them enough to like leave her alone. Uh, And then you find out that it's not only him messing with his own mind, but then other people messing with the way that he'll mess with his mind. Exactly. Yeah. He's uh, I think that's where the movie turns it up a notch too, where you find that Carrie, Carrie Ann Moss's Natalie has, has induced him to assault her by playing to his anger, which if you've seen the rest of the movie is very obviously there. She has clocked him correctly. Yeah, no, and and having each character, you know, sort of systematically show their hand, uh, I think in reverse is really, really interesting because, you know, what Nolan's doing here is charting the tactics that these people take to get what they want and then like the climax for them is making that decision i want something i want someone beaten up i want these people these criminals taken off the street because i can't use the system to get them off the street which is ultimately like sort of the the central conflict of the movie not to spoil it but i'm assuming people have seen memento which is 20 years old i'm noah ballard (laughs) well that was well used you burned it at the right time um yeah, I mean, folks, if you want to rewatch Memento clean or you only remember part of the twist, jump ahead about 10 minutes until we talk about Mahalan Drive. Um, the Sammy Jankis parable turns out to be a mismatch of false memories from Lenny, or so says Teddy, anyway, um, that, uh, he, that Lenny did investigate Sammy, but Sammy turned out to be a con man who didn't have a wife and this whole, uh, you know, tragic memory test you see playing out, um, between the Jankuses. Um, it was actually Lenny's wife who was diabetic, but okay, here's my big question that I think that I did not remember. And I don't actually think the movie answers. Um, there's an implication potentially that Lenny induced his wife to let him kill her with insulin but that's never said because that's what happens in the jankus one but that's never said straight out and one of the things i think is really interesting about this movie is nolan 
is constantly critiqued and rightfully so by just being like dead wife what's this character need dead wife little kid dead wife i think the most interesting (laughs) wrinkle of this movie and the lesson that perhaps they did not learn is like is this movie insinuating that uh perhaps the wife is is not dead and that he may be on like temporary hiatus from someone who has like let him go because you have that flash at the end where she's on his chest and he has the final tattoo on his pack of of like i found him i did it and they're both just like looking vacantly into space like completely like not necessarily feeling good or refreshed about what was done here um what's your read on this well, I almost think that it's the fact that he killed someone is the reason that she left. Like, maybe she did go into a diabetic coma, and then the easier, harder memory is that she died. Uh, but I don't know that it's ever said flat out. He doesn't even say in the monologue about Sammy Jankis that the wife dies. He just says she slips into a coma that she oh, never yeah. awakens from. But they, she doesn't. He doesn't say flat out that she's dead. So I do wonder if the memory. It's so many layers of this false memory that the first memory is actually that he got this tattoo. She's like, "Why the fuck do you have this tattoo?" He's like, "Oh, I must have killed somebody." And she's like, "What the fuck?" And then she leaves. And then what he covers that up with is like, "Oh, why I killed her? Like I have this guilt that I have to, you know, play with." And then it becomes something else. Like every time it seems to, with his little phrases on his photographs, like each time the the thing changes. Yeah. I have two silly questions for you and then we should probably rate Memento and move on. Yeah. If you had to get completely out of context, one of Lenny's tattoos, which one would you get? Um, well, I would get one. This is not a tattoo, but it's one of his pictures. I would get one that said like chance colon. Don't believe his lies. (laughs) This is kind of my other one. Yeah. Which is not that funny of a question. Just a funny idea. Like, I bet you can order a Polaroid of just Teddy and keep it in your wallet and just like wait for someone to see you checking out at the grocery store and be like, what the who the fuck is this guy? That'd be fun. And That's a pretty jo- obscure reference to get in the grocery line here An 20 inside years joke later. Between you and a terrified stranger. I think it would be fun. Yeah. Or to like meet someone you do know and like have a picture of them and like a one line assessment of their role in your life yeah. and just put it away as they like show up to coffee or whatever <laughs> might be a picture of you and on the back it just says noah podcast partner do not talk while he's talking <laughs> uh, noah has lost someone yeah, <laughs> we'll, has lost we'll host someone. a podcast with you out of pity <laughs> has lost someone semicolon let him get his point out um <laughs> Uh, let's tell people how we rate movies on Be Real and then we'll rate Memento. On Be Real, we rate movies in two categories. A good or bad for technical quality and a good or bad for watchability. So what are the four possible ratings? I don't care! Good, good movies are both well-made and highly entertaining. The Fugitive, Parasite, Rear Window, or The Hunt for Red October. Once more, we play our dangerous game. Good, bad movies are often impressive technically, but also tough sits. Historical melodramas like The Mission, horror movies too scary or gross to rewatch, or self-serious musicals like Yentl. Papa, can you hear me? 
Conversely, bad good movies are highly flawed but still gratifying. Nonsensical hangouts like Hot Tub Time Machine or ludicrously fun action fare like Twister or Stargate. Give my regards to King Todd, asshole. Bad, bad movies are neither well-made nor entertaining. Examples we've covered unfortunately include Garden State, Fifty Shades of Grey, and Attack of the Clones. I'm deeply sorry, master. Got all that? Time for a rating. I think this movie is straight up good good. I really enjoyed revisiting it. Um, I think that you can see some of the technical um, mastery and ambition coming also like just in the sound design that like that sounds like a DVD trying to reset um, is so like, I don't know. I, I felt like it was like, in my vertebra it, at the end of the movie. Um, it was a, it's really unsettling and strange. Um, and Wally Pfister's cinematography looks great. Um, to the point I was making earlier, there's just like, there's no other Nolan movie where Joe Pantoliano would be rummaging in the bushes for his keys for 45 seconds. And I was just like, I'm so glad this is in here. <laughs> just this man with a terrible crew cut looking for his keys. Um, the Guy Pierce performance is excellent. I mean, good, good all around. I'm going to disagree with you and say that this one's good, bad. I think this is, this movie has very little rewatch value once you know where it's going. And there's no amount of time that can go by where you like kind of forget what the trick is. Um, Whereas I think other Nolan, better Nolan movies, uh, the insomnias of the world, you know, have more moving character development. Insomnia is better than Memento? I think yes. I think wow. Insomnia has more sort of interesting character work and more emotional stakes than this movie. I mean, the trick of this movie is that the emotions are all fake. And mm-hmm. I like on one hand, that's clever, but I don't know if that's like the most resonant way to tell a human story. Uh, you know, no one's always on that line of like, is this good or is this just like a really good magic trick? And I think yeah. this one is more of a good magic trick than an overall like good theatrical movie watching experience. So good, bad. Interesting. Are we going Mulholland Drive next? Mulholland Drive. 2001, uh, originally titled Mulholland DR. Uh, after a car wreck on the winding Mulholland Drive, renders a woman amnesiac she and a perky hollywood hopeful search for clues and answers across los angeles in a twisty venture beyond dreams and reality i can't believe it i'm just so excited to be here i'm in this dream place this one comes highly recommended What are you doing? Get out of the car. Yeah. The girl is still missing. What's wrong? I just don't know who I am. I wonder where you were going. Mulholland Drive. Come on, it'll be just like in the movies. We'll pretend to be someone else. I'm so 
interested to figure out with you how to talk about this movie because on the one hand like i think if you treat it like a nolan movie if you if you if you take the the screenwriting wonk perspective like don't do that to a david lynch movie and on the other hand i don't want to have our discussion just be like it's a david lynch movie don't analyze it uh this movie is so kind of curiously between those two like modes of conversation um well, yeah, I mean, this movie is essentially a, a pretty straight uh, crime movie into its last 45 minutes in which it becomes a nightmare of, you know, something about Hollywood identities. Sure. I'm just waiting. I just I'm gonna keep myself open. I just wanna say that now. Okay. That like my my heart is open to you. And like if you I, I wanna be convinced that this movie is as good as I know that you're gonna say it is. So okay. just know that. Okay. Well, I'll try to do my best because I at the end of it I I took a moment and I was like, Oh, wonderful. And then I took another moment and I was like, No, it's gonna hate this. <laughs> I don't. I, I don't want to be labeled that way. Okay, I, I won't. I'm. I'm going to try to like it. Everyone loves this David Lynch character, uh, so I'm going to try to to, <laughs> to to do that as well. Well, I mean, I also think that to the extent that people like this David Lynch character, it's okay if you don't like like his his thing. Do you um, mean it? Yeah, he definitely has a thing, and his thing is not always mine. But I think they're while it is drenched in the most confusing subjectivities, I think there is an objective power to it that people have responded to and that I still find myself responding to. Um, okay, so... The movie begins with a dance sequence that in- introduces us to the Naomi Watts character just sort of in a, a flash, sort of a photo of her. And then we cut to sort of a cold, open, law and order kind of thing where we're driving around the titular Mulholland drive and there's guys in the limousine and this beautiful woman in the back. And then they like pull off early and you know, they point a gun at her and she doesn't know why. And then these like reckless teenagers like come around a curve and crash right into the limo. And the only person who survives, um, is Rita, uh, played by Laura Herring, uh, who, wanders off into the Hollywood Hills to try to figure out who she is. Uh, and the, the movie kind of follows the, at least at the beginning, the procedure of, you know, the police looking at this crash being like, huh, there's like a pearl earring on the ground here. I wonder like if there's a, a person who wandered away from this. And then we cut to the uh, Naomi Watts character, Betty, who's just gotten off at LAX, come in from Canada to be a big star. And her aunt says, hey, you can use my apartment and you can use my connections to get auditions. And so she goes to this apartment. She sort of has that, you know, L.A. Hollywood intro. And then suddenly there's like this person in the apartment, too. And it is... Rita, uh, who can't remember anything from the crash uh, in the previous scene. And the two of them begin both their kind of curiosity around what happened uh, and then also kind of a psychosexual connection. (laughs) Kind of. 
<laughs> no, definitely. Yeah, they and uh, I mean, mirroring is a big thing in this movie, and it's interesting that their journeys in are these parallel tracks where you know Rita takes such a bump on the head from this like violent limousine encounter that she's like the lights of Hollywood and just kind of starts like bumbling anew back toward you know the dream machine and then Betty's arrival at LAX is so um you know so slathered in artificiality of- right yeah that she's like wooed this like older married couple on the plane and they're like oh my god it was so good to meet you and travel together yeah you're and, gonna be and so you know famous. it's that like lynchian overacting thing oh man uh, and waiting for that other shoe to drop is like one of the simmering things in this movie, um, especially in the music. I mean, the music is, I mean, it's the same composer uh, as Twin Peaks, Angelo Badalamenti. Yeah. Who also plays the guy who spits out his espresso. Oh, nice. <laughs> we were told this was one of the best. <laughs> oh, man. Um, so what lands this movie in our podcast as an amnesia movie is that Rita can't remember after this car wreck what's happened. And it turns her into a really dependent figure on Betty. And you're kind of, it gives Betty a lot of power in a way that becomes suspicious depending on what your ultimate read of this movie ends up being. I maybe even read them as, as warnings from like artist to self of, um, you know, if you put someone this blank in here, you're, it's, it's really easy to turn them into whatever you want them to be. And in some ways, if you, if you buy into the, the Hollywood critique of this, this is what Hollywood has been demanding of, of young actresses, uh, since uh since california in memoriam but is that the read is that the read on it is it about the way that young hollywood actresses are treated and what are we to make of to the fact that like yes there's definitely there, i mean there has to be that critique there but also early criticism from inside the funding that was put together for this as a television show before it turned into a movie was that Naomi Watts was too old to play this role. And that's kind of interesting too, is that like, she's not some 20 year old ingenue coming to town. She's like clearly in her thirties and that makes it, I guess a more sort of pointed look at this sort of, I don't know, this this dare to dream or something. The la-la land of it all. Yeah. It's hard for me to respond to that one without talking like all the way about the ending. Do you want to just cut? Should we just go to that? Let's. That would be the only purpose. That's the only reason we're here. If you subscribe to the theory that Diane is Naomi Watts and the whole first 90 minutes of the movie is just her fantasy explanation of the relationship that she would like to have with Camilla, who's also played by Laura Herring, um, then I think a lot of the kind of goofy, bizarre minutia of the Hollywood story is Diane explaining her lack of 
success and how difficult and weird and esoteric this process is to someone struggling on the outside who might be like starting a little bit too late. And I don't think that is to say that like none of the stuff that she thinks about the casting process is, it's not to say that it's all like untrue or it's all a fabrication, but I think it's like, it's more like what she's imagining. Like all the stuff of like Justin Thoreau being forced by these like, you know, scary producers slash criminals, whoever Dan Hedaya and, and, uh, the Angelo Badalamenti are supposed to be is I think someone projecting why I don't get these parts or like why this system feels there definitely is a, like an attempt, if that is the working theory, there definitely is that sort of layers. And this is almost like part of like the, what we were talking about with Nolan, the idea of like the memories you make and the instincts that you have and the different layers that exist there. I mean, this one has like both moody director, you know, auteur dickbag guy. Yeah. And then it has like the sort of predatory executives above him. And then it has a layer of like mafia guys on top of that. And then it has like freakazoid mr roke like in a room somewhere with a microphone just like dictating how the like world sees everything i mean that's like some deep state cabal shit uh right there so yes like i i like that read as if it's this person attempting to explain why she hasn't gotten any breaks so far and if if only she didn't have this like relationship that pulled her from the chance meeting with this director uh she would be the next it girl because mm-hmm. i think the the scene that betty acts out in that cramped little room where she like has to get all like wanting and desirous and and sexual with that like older actor. First of all, that is a, such a gripping scene because you saw them half ass rehearse the scene in the kitchen, right? And it was like so tossed off and like, oh, what, like whatever. And I think she, the other interesting thing of Betty imagining herself as a potential it girl is in is the the neighbor Coco is just like, oh, and by the way, they dropped off those lines for your big audition tomorrow for this person who hasn't like taken a meeting or have an agent yet. Um, right. Yeah. But she's imagining being exploited and being good at it. Let me ask you this. So that, all that stuff I can, I can get behind. And then I can get behind too, like the, you know, the, the magic, show itself and like the seeing the the music and whatever and the woman singing and they're like that to me is like they like go see a movie or something and now that you know how the sausage is made it's like scarier than it is entertaining or something uh and i can get behind all that what sort of baffles me about this movie is the patrick fishler michael cook dan and herb sitting at the winkies being like, I keep having this fucking dream where, you know, I you see you at the counter and then there's this evil force I can see through the wall. Like, what is that about? Okay, so we have to go inside the Patrick Fischler thing for a second. He's telling his friend about, I have this dream about being in the Winkies and seeing, you know, being paralyzed by this horrifying visage outside. And like, right now, we need to like prove that or I'd, I'd like to go see if it's if it's happening and to make sure I'm I'm really awake. And then the terrifying visage in a in a nobody. One of the amazing things about Lynch is just the like he 
for to show you an image that's so indelible almost because you didn't really see it is so scary. Like he cuts away from that, that being that houseless being like so fast. Um, and I think that's, that's what like gave me nightmares about this movie. The, after I watched it. Um, but what is it, but what's its resonance within the other storyline? It's a mini parable for the fact that Betty can't hang on to this, this dream, this image, or this dream, this fantasy forever, because like, it's going to crack at some point. It's going to become real, which is exactly what happens to Fischler. Like it suddenly becomes real and it's too terrifying to bear. I think it's just a little short vignette that basically describes what's going to happen to her in the end. Got it. Like all Lynch things, it's just argued about um, to to no symbolic to no symbolic end. I think it's so fascinating to do a Nolan and a Lynch together because I think you also have two halves of like cinephiles' brains. The people who are drawn to Nolan are like the people who are like if you just look at the comments on like Memento clips, it's everyone being like. Yeah, this movie's so cool because it's so ambiguous. But like, this is what I think actually happened. Like, it's for people who know that there's no answer, but their big takeaway is that they actually do think they have it. And Lynch, people are more comfortable for people who like are accepting of the fact that there'll never be an answer, which is, I think, some ways a more like disturbing way to live. Um, but they make such a good pair. Walks and dreamers. Wow. Yeah, I, I'm not that accepting, I don't think, as a person or a film goer. You know, I, I like a little bit more certainty with my ambiguity, I think. Exactly. <laughs> so for this one, I, I guess I like wanted, I, like, I liked how playful it was. And I love, you know, of course, a, an L.A. noir. Um, but I guess like it you know, the, the performance, like whatever that thing that they see is that like midnight 2am magic show. Like, I just wanted to know more about like what it is that was transporting us out of this fantasy, like into maybe the harsh reality of it in order to fully understand the critique that the movie was trying to make. Like I get like debating stuff, but if I had more to hold on to, I feel like I'd be better at debating what it was about. Sure. Yeah, um, my feeling is, so that's like after they they get Rita in costume to basically look like Betty, and they've just had like a very satisfying Congress, have they not? Oh <laughs> uh, yes, their Congress seems satisfying indeed. Unanimous, unanimous approval. And then they kind of like go out for go out for this date and there's the really iconic um scene of uh rebecca del rio singing roy orbison's crying My feeling was how much more to Betty's dream could there be than like a perfect 
roll in the hay and then like this completely transformative like operatic tragedy in which the performer like sings so well that she seems to drop dead at the end like i almost just looked at that like in an art sense of there's not what's the rest of the fantasy is like what what they do on monday or like their sixth year of a committed partnership um it's just like it's so it's so transcendent so beautiful it's the breaking point but that's not like a there's no fact to go on there just my feeling I just have trouble buying into the fact that this whole movie is a, is at least Diane slash Betty's fantasy when so much of it is, it is internalized, uh, the Justin Throw Adam Kesher director character. Mm-hmm. Like, it didn't make a ton of sense to me to show, to spend so much time with the camera on him where he's, like, in this board meeting that he, like, doesn't quite follow and then, like, losing his wife and then, like, losing his finances and then, right. like, having this weird sort of Quentin Tarantino-esque meeting or, like, Coen Brothers-esque meeting with a guy called the Cowboy with no eyebrows who tells him, like, how to cast, cast his picture without really giving him any other instructions. So, I don't know. I almost thought that, like... Maybe I can get behind with what you're saying, but I almost think it's it's a combined fantasy of like multiple characters. Like this person sort of, you know, trying to justify why he cast this ingenue here when anybody could have been better, maybe. It was like, oh, well, I had to do it. Otherwise, like my career was in jeopardy. Sure. You know, like giving extra weight maybe to the the myths that we tell ourselves and really like the perfect person could just be right around the corner. If only like a chance encounter would bring us together and cast her as the lead in my new movie. Yeah, man, I think it has to do with the, how he's just like so adept at playing with themes. Like it's, it can seem, there seems like there are non sequitorial things, but it's never random. There's always this like chord structure underneath a Lynch movie that makes it feel harmonious like why do the guys the cruising teens that they crash into at the beginning they seem like they've rolled out of a 50s movie like does it make sense that they're literally on the street at the same time in 2001 as these people in the limo who seem like they're kind of in an 80s movie while justin thoreau seem is like the quintessential like dominic setta like swordfish era douchebag in in 2000 like no none of it makes sense but the, all these parts are converging from a place that makes sense on like a textured level. I don't know. I, I don't feel like I'm sold here by by your, your, your arguments about texture. How about a theme that, okay, so how about something that, again, doesn't make any literal sense, but wraps back around. So the absolute cheapest part of... Betty's like fantasy has to be that old couple at the airport, as you said, that like are just like, you're gonna do so great. We're totally hook, line, and sinker sold on the fact that you're gonna be the next Barbara Stanwyck. And then those are the two creatures that haunt Diane at the very end, the things that cause this woman to to take her life. Like there's something about that. It doesn't make any sense, but it feels right. The most cartoonish part of this thing become the most grotesque part of the bookend. I mean, I think that's Lynch work at at its most discernible. I hear what you're saying, but my preference is still for Ryan Murphy's Hollywood. <laughs> All right, we better uh, rate Mahal and Drive and uh, 
and move on. I mean, it's good, good for me. And it's also, the, the other thing is that I, I'd never seen this movie before. Like, I think it demands a certain rewatch for some of these discoveries. Like, I think there's a reason people who are really into Lynch, which I'm really not. Um, I really like Blue Velvet. I think Wild at Heart's pretty cool. Eraserhead is 100% not my thing. Um, but, like, this is something I want to go back to. Like, I, I want to feel if the, in this, like, non-factual completely imaginary way if the performance of crying is like enough to you know justify in whatever way crossing that door of perception because it's so transcendent again like i want to go back and look for the answers that i know aren't there so good good i think it's good good too as (laughs) well at least by our rating system i think it's good good because like i think it's well made and like the performances are good and the it's it's visually like quite interesting like i do think lynch is really it's he's an interesting filmmaker and tv maker to watch and i do think that i was never like i was never so like sort of confused or put off that i was bored like i i was entertained moment to moment uh and really hung with this one um so in that way i think it is a good good even though i maybe found it a bit unscrutable for sure. That makes sense. I'm glad that you didn't feel the you didn't feel the 230 or the 226 or whatever it is. I didn't. Uh in fact, like this to me was the one that I was most engaged with. Right. Let's go to something far sillier. That would be 1996's The Long Kiss Goodnight, in which Samantha Kane lives in a small town with her daughter. Eight years ago, she emerged, two months pregnant, from a nearby river with no memory of her past or who she is. However, she's getting closer to finding out about her past. This could use some work, IMDb. <laughs> First of all, that thing was a river? I don't think so. I saw the cliff she fell down. Yeah, it definitely looked more saltwater based to me. It looked like a fjord. But yes, so we have Gina Davis, who is like living in the suburbs uh, that they also shot Jingle All the Way in. Uh, (laughs) You can almost like see like before Santa Claus, like Arnold Schwarzenegger is Turbo Man, like coming down the street in this Christmas parade. Let me ask you this, Chance. I mean, this is a big 1996 question, but for the amount of like small town Christmas parades that exist in films from this time. Yeah. You would think that, like, that was something that Americans just do constantly. You would. And I have to say, I've never even, I've never even seen a sign for a Christmas parade, let alone participated in one. It's a great point. I really don't think uh, parades are a big part of Christmas. Uh, It does seem like... More of an inside holiday, wouldn't you agree? Hello, girls. Caitlin, come help me in the kitchen. Hurry up, because I forget where it is. That's her mom. She's got amnesia. (laughs) What if you couldn't remember your real name, your first kiss, or your last goodbye? I don't remember. Honey, you have an ETA on that carrot? Stow it. And then suddenly... (laughs) I used to do this! I'm a chef! No! Without warning... Give me something else! Celery! Mm. Scallions! 
all your memories. Name's Charlie. I'm coming back. Came flooding back to you. Isn't Charlie? Long time. One bullet at a time. I got movement on Samantha Kane. Good. I may have a lead on someone. They still have some of her stuff. <gasps> this man, he's gonna help me find some things out. So we'll be safe. Your full name is Charlene Elizabeth Baltimore. This could be trouble. My name is Samantha Kane. No, 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 forget all that. I'm in the PTA. Then quit. You're an assassin working for the United States government. We have 24 hours. We find her and we kill her. All right, so Gina, did you say it's Gina Davis as our I think I, I think I did. Okay. And yeah. then Samuel L. Jackson plays uh, Mitch Hennessy, the... the God. D- does that character name leave something to be desired for you, or is it right on? I think it's one of the most deliberately racist character names we've encountered on this podcast, but we can leave that to the side. Sure. Um, yeah, it smacks a lot of Shane Black trying to have a laugh, trying to like very self-awarely gesture toward how right. exploitative these movies can get. Um and that's not to say that I don't think this isn't an interesting character. So yeah, this is Shane Black wrote the script uh, after Last Boy Scout and Last Action Hero. He just completed his last duology and he's moving on to his long movie. Um, and then a decade after this, he'll write and direct Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Um, but yeah, this movie uh, kind of breaks even for the studio. Sort of a disappointment uh, financially Wait, wait speaking. can we stop for a second? What? You can't talk about Shane Black without mentioning his wildly successful Lethal Weapon. Oh, sure. I was just talking around that, uh, like in this in this window. But oh, yeah, sure. Of course, it starts with Lethal. But he's Weapon. not just the guy who did Last Boy Scout. <laughs> We've done a whole. I'm sorry. We've done a whole Shane Black episode. I'm well aware that he is the Lethal Weapon scribe. Okay. I just wanted to make sure we were being informative. Okay. Well, then, let's lest t- we forget, I'm Noah Ballard. And I'm the guy who wants to talk about 2018's The Predator, because Noah is going to make me cover every Shane Black movie now. What about his TV movie, Edge? All right, you win. Um, Rennie Harlan, director. Uh, he is married to Gene Davis at the time? At this time, they are reeling from that pirate movie with Matthew Modine. Cutthroat Island. Cutthroat Island, which was like... <laughs> when adjusted for inflation, one of the biggest box office losers uh, in history. My God. Um, Harlan had, ma- had made uh, Die Hard 2. He's going to make Deep Blue Sea. Uh, and oh, then... is he ever? <laughs> People and consider that to be his Gina Davis like sad breakup movie. Deep Blue Sea is his lament. No, to... I'm just joking. Okay. <laughs> People, little known fact, the original title for Deep Blue Sea was Gotta Get Her Back. Uh, <laughs> if only I had been as smart as these sharks, I wouldn't have lost my wife. <laughs> if only I could swim backwards. Oh my god. Um, What the hell were we talking about? <laughs> so I never finished talking about uh, Mitchell Hennessy because his name is so racist. Um, Sam Jackson plays this detective who Samantha Kane is sort of like paying in perpetuity. Like she just has sort of like these standing calls out to like cheaper and cheaper detectives to be like, I'm living my life as a teacher, but if you should happen to find anything, uh, you're on my payroll. <laughs> and that's kind of where he stands. Um, 
Right. And then for some reason, they both, they simultaneously uncover this like postcard and credit card from Gina Davis's previous life. Yeah. Uh, at the same time where, of course, the Christmas parade in which Gina Davis portrays hot Mrs. Santa is captured by local news, which during a feel-good human interest featurette during the <laughs> window in which a now one-eyed convict from this previous international like assassin group is watching the TV during his, his prison TV time and he sees Gina Davis and he's like, holy shit. The person who took my eye is alive. Yep. Uh, and this and he, unfurls this he whole breaks thing. out. Yeah. He breaks out, tracks her down, and there is the one of the funniest and most outrageous like fighting in a like a suburban house oh scenes God. ever. Uh and then yeah, so this is how it sort of triangulates. She realizes something is amiss when someone comes to kill her. And then Sam Jackson's like, by the way, I have this postcard from ten years ago that may explain that you were engaged to somebody. And he kind of shows up at the exact right time for her to leave her family because she's too dangerous for multiple reasons. And then they can go embark and try to find who wrote the card and different pieces of her past. An amnesia movie, yes. if you will. Yeah. She does not have all the answers. No. Uh, to what happened before. Uh, but yeah, but much like the Memento character, uh, it turns out that like there's someone with some sinister impulses like underneath this suburban do-gooder single mom type. I really, I really like Gina Davis. I always have. I think this is a super interesting role for her. I feel like she's not quite pulling off, if I can be so bold. What oh, Shane, be bold, baby. What Shane Black and Rennie Harlan are imagining. Because this like this old version of her that is Charlie is like has this like a uh, Brandon Flowers eye makeup and hair like Brigitte Nielsen. Um Jesus Christ with these references. I'm going all over the place. And She's supposed to be like, you know, such a sleek, razor sharp killer. I think she's supposed to exude that the 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 cutting style of like a Sharon Stone and more recently a Charlize Theron. And I actually don't think Gina Davis can do that. She's too real of an actor all the time. She always seems like a little bit too grounded to pull off, I think, like the super style that these uh, jocks are looking for <laughs> but I think her right. inability to pull that off arguably makes it more interesting it's kind of creepier that she has the same mannerisms and the same put-ons as this woman who seemed so genuinely kindly and fun-loving and had like all the the humor of the the chef knife skills is as you said outrageous and I love those scenes and she's pretty funny in them so the transformation, like, I don't know. I don't think it quite works, but it's almost better that it doesn't. Do you know what I'm saying? Like when yes she, and no. When she hits on Mitchell Hennessy, when she's just like, you know, like, I haven't had a date in eight years. Like, I need to do like this, have a wild fuck to finally bury Samantha Kane and get rid of, get rid of my family forever. Um, I think it's like not totally convincing and I think that's a good note to hit because Sam Jackson isn't totally convinced. Oh, yeah. 
No, and I think that their dynamic doesn't work for the reasons that, like, I don't know, they're not like Sandra Bullock and Keanu Reeves in Speed or something. You know, they're not this, like, quintessential, like, just Hollywood good-looking people who, like, are probably going to, like, get together at the end. You know, there's something antagonistic about the fact that they've, like, they both have these dark pasts that they're both trying to recover but also move past you know in equal measure and so i think that they are you know sort of friends of convenience Mm -hmm. which makes them you know a lot more interesting i mean much like when you and i briefly lived together chance like gina davis gets annoyed at how much singing like uh samuel jackson is doing under his breath (laughs) Uh uh-huh you know and moments like that are kind of like they're real and then of course the climactic shootout scene where she's like no, Mitch, like, don't do the thing. And he's like, do something good for once in your life. Like that then rings so much truer because it's not like, oh, I got to help this woman I'm attracted to who I don't actually know that well, because like, that's what the movie calls for. Like it actually feels earned by like what this character is trying to do with his life or her life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree. I think they're successful 90s action set pieces, but my response is to laugh. They are so cacophonous and crazy like the scene at the central pennsylvania train station where for a split second you see a sign over genus datus's shoulder that says thin ice and you're like okay i've made a note of it but is this the yeah it's a Chekhov's thin ice here and then they like you know grenades are going off in the station and they jump out the window and i'm like i'm reminded of three minutes ago with the the thin ice sign as gina davis is like spraying bullets downward to create a circle (laughs) for them to a fish hole for them to fall into there is a really amusing imdb trivia on uh the long kiss goodnight where they in the second ice skating scene where she's like chasing the car on the skates they had initially shot her doing like several mid-air tricks and then shooting the car enough to stop it but quoting imdb trivia it never quote gained visual literacy (laughs) (laughs) that's fantastic uh there are a couple things yeah. in this movie that don't quite broach visual literacy, but I think it's all the more charming. But can you imagine like what that must have looked like for Gina Davis to be doing like I Tanya and then taking out a car? Gina Davis is six feet tall. Like her doing ice skating tricks oh, yeah. would be so hard. But to your back to your point for a second about whether or not Gina Davis can like pull this off. I almost think that's part of the joke is that she can't because there's that great scene mm. where Brian Cox is trying to explain to them like who she is. And Samuel L is like her an assassin and just like loses his mind for 10 seconds. And like, I think that's kind of like, I laughed at that moment too, because like Gina Davis, like other than being like a little bit weird and like maybe unmoored socially has not exhibited like any sort of, like freakish uh, sort of athletic ability. I mean, even her like devil on her shoulder, Charlie character is like, look what this suburban woman's like done to my ass, you know, which is kind of like, you know, maybe she is a different person, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe, maybe she is making that, that choice. And that is ultimately what the conflict of the movie is. It's like, will this person choose suburban nineties mediocrity or will she return to, you know, government contracting uh, 
killing Craig Bierko uh, associates. This is the most literal minded of the mediocre times ones because she's literally, uh, you know, a spy from a cold war era that like in the course of her eight year amnesia gap, like the government has had no use for, but then the movie weirdly predicts a nine 11 conspiracy, um, which is pretty oh, yeah. intense. Yeah. I love the moment when Craig Bierko looks right in the camera and he's like, we all know that jet fuel doesn't, mer- right. uh, doesn't melt steel beams. No, that's not. No, in there. I think you're, that's not in there at all. You know who I kind of like in this movie? Is it Brian Cox? No, it's Bierko. Oh, Bierko is incredible in this. He's having Bierko's a great time. Bierko is one of those. Craig Bierko is one of those actors where, you know, it so easily could have been him. He's just like not good looking enough to be like either Dylan McDermott or Dermot Mulroney. <laughs> no, I don't think it's not good looking. I think it's, I think it is a, the ratio of his face. He's one of those guys where when he does his million dollar smile, you're like, mm, corners of the mouth are up too far. I, it immediately goes mm. to douchebag. <laughs> and it's like, we're not going to be looking for a Gerard Butler for at least another exactly. 10 years. He's incredibly handsome, but there is something about his, I mean, this whole movie is him Cheshire grinning and saying like the most dickish funny, the, 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 the funny thing of Craig Bierko is that like, he looks like Gerard Butler, but like he has all these like Jerry Seinfeldisms. We were like, nobody who's like this sardonic but looks like this can be a good guy. Like when that guy's radio radioing him at the end and he's like, sir, I think I'm dying. And he goes, oh, continue dying out. <laughs> right. It's yeah. So no, shitty. he definitely does. He does feel like a like a Patrick Warburton. Oh, sure. But he's the perfect vessel for Shane Black because this is really, this is a Shane Black attitude. It is a little bit mean. Yes. And very knowing and very smirking. He's the perfect Shane Black villain. It's proto Robert Downey Jr. Like just saying everything he's feeling in a sarcastic way kind of character before it's just like as charming as maybe it it can or should be. Um this movie has that perfect, uh, like early, late '90s, early 2000s, like international supervillain called like a name from canonical literature. In this case, Daedalus, like oh, wow. unbelievable. Is that his code name? Yeah, that's uh, that's Morse. Uh, oh, Morse. Is, yeah. Oh my David god. David Morse is Daedalus. 1996. We love a quick Morse. Oh my God. Can you, is there a better way to heighten your nineties action movie than casting David Morse in a bit part? This movie is replete with like silly shit like that. Like the, whatever the CIA is doing is not remotely like interesting or important at all. Um, But it's, it's just a really good fun version. I think of the nineties Shane black paradigm of, and the paradigm going back to Lethal Weapon, your beloved Lethal Weapon. Of hey, a- <laughs> whoa, whoa. I didn't say it was beloved. I don't even think it's one of my favorite action movies. Uh, I'm just kidding. Can I tell you a moment of this movie that like really spoke to me in kind of a ridiculous way? And again, please. I have no idea whether it works. It probably doesn't. So one of the first bits of 
global killer Charlie that you see poking through Samantha is like she's ice skating with her daughter and her daughter falls down and unbeknownst to Samantha breaks her wrist but Charlie is peeking out and Charlie is like get back up kid life is pain just get used to it skate over there and don't you fall down again the call the easy callback to which is this like seven-year-old girl pounding on her mother's back being like mama life is pain and here in the 12 month 12th month of the pandemic something about that just felt right to see this little child screaming words that she doesn't understand the meaning of but the words are life is pain you just get used to it (laughs) it's like this is this is a moment this movie is having wow i'm glad that that was your big takeaway from that harrowing I was just the trauma that our parents do to us without even realizing. Oh, I didn't get that part. Word. <laughs> Is life pain? <laughs> I certainly think so. Uh, I wish someone had told me sooner. Just kidding. They told me immediately. Yikes. Yeah, no, I, I think and that goes back to your point, too, about like where Gina Davis is like a humanist and where she is doing the action movie Shane Black thing. Um, and I think that it makes moments like that exceptionally scary. Uh, and going back to our, or at least my overarching thesis about the questions of like who we are and like who like who we think we are and what we tell people we are like this one is interesting too because gina davis is almost aware and unaware of the things she's saying and doing as if she has like this is almost like a split personality movie more than it is an amnesia movie because like when her old memory self comes back it's almost like you know watching fucking Damian Lewis, like in his own head, looking through those files uh, and Dreamcatcher or some shit. Have you seen mm. that movie? God, Kasdan? what a weird representation. No, I What's that? Oh yeah. Oh, it's it's late, Kasdan. <laughs> it's way past Silverado, dude. It's. <laughs> oh man, the accidental tourist is miles in the review. You can't even taste the accidental tourist in the fact that. Thomas Jane and everybody else like just shits an alien out of themselves. Is that the, actually like the last Kazan movie? Didn't that one kind of break him? Yeah. I would love the making of movie of that movie called the last Kazan. Last Kazan hero. That's a good one too. Um, I think this movie is uh, a good, good. I had a, ball in the first hour because it just has like a a real facility with comedy and um gina davis just seems so kind and grounded and you i think you really do feel the loss of samantha kane even as hokey as it can kind of be you're like wow you really did seem like a good person you even had like amnesia jokes locked and loaded to make the neighbor kids laugh about your being suspicious somehow um the end is not nearly so creative i mean i think it just ends in like 90s action spectacle um like you're hoping for but but it it goes for the 90s action spectacle like really goes for it when they blow up that entire bridge which is i love that 90s action movie morality where like the one fbi agent is like no ma'am negative we're not coming out there to help your child and you're like great shane black views that as justification to blow up 200 g-men um 
which is pretty fun. And then Samuel L. Jackson's just got like blood pouring out of his mouth as he finally comes to save the day, which is a little more grotesque than your average, like, you know, Clancy adaptation around the time. Um, This is good, good. I really think what appeals to me about this movie is the fact that, you know, fucking finally there's a movie that positions the suburban parent going through a crisis as the mom and not like the doofus dad sure you know so many of these movies are like occupied by the schwarzeneggers and tim allens and whomever else uh, and it's nice to see one grounded without having to like ask the questions of like oh is she is she like not a good mom for like leaving her daughter with like bad dad joke telling Tom Amandez. And it's like, no, the movie doesn't have that judgment to give. It's more about like this character with actual agency, like doing what needs to be done. Uh, And then of course the daughter plays into it, but like not in the way that like con air is like so much of like, has so much sympathy for the Nicolas Cage character trying to get home to his daughter. Well, this one I think extends a similar, you know, feminist energy towards Gina Davis uh, in a way that like this person has the instincts of a government killer first and then has right. to make the active choice to be a good mom second. Uh, and that's what is the, like that's the inner conflict for her and the character we're sort of watching unfold, which makes it really entertaining. Uh, and I think for that, and the fact that I think the movie, I mean, Rennie Harlan is a hack, but uh I think in terms of being visually literate, uh, this movie's well-made too. So I think a good good. All right, brother. Cool. We made it to the end. Do you want to talk about did. Paycheck? Well, aren't we going to get to uh, Mulholland Drive and Memento at some point? <laughs> you did a, we did a good job of not wearing that bit out. I think this was a success. And I'm Noah Bell. Okay, we got to go by. <laughs> All alone in the moonlight I can smile at the old days I was beautiful then I